Amen. Amen. Uh, well, good morning and uh, welcome. Uh, so glad to see you all here. Uh, before we get to the scriptures this morning, I'd like for us to just start uh, by going directly to uh, the Lord in prayer. A couple of things specifically that I want us uh, to pray about here uh, this morning. Uh, the first uh, the first being normally we would pray for another church uh, in the metro area. Uh, but my sense is many, if not most, or all of you are aware of uh, just the insane and horrific tragedies that are unfolding in Iraq. And uh, so what I would uh, like to do is to pray for our brothers and sisters over there, many of whom uh, are having to deal with the very real question of, am I willing to give up my life uh, for my faith? And uh, uh, Becky and I have her brother, and uh, his wife and their three kids live in northern Iraq. And so it's highly, highly personal uh, in my household uh, when we watch what is unfolding over there. And so you, you can go ahead and tell me, fine, it's a little bit selfish on my part to want to pray for the church over there. I don't really care. That's who we're praying for this morning. Um, and then uh, Denise, are you here? Denise Nanneman, you're there. Okay, Lynn's not here. Uh, many of you know Lynn Nanneman, one of our elders. Was it a year ago today? Yes. A year ago today, uh, Lynn fell and shattered uh, the bone in one of his legs, and they've tried all kinds of different things. And uh, tomorrow at 3 o'clock, Lynn's going to go to uh, Prez downtown, and they're going to amputate part of his leg. And uh, so the, the Denise and Lynn have been phenomenal, uh, just downright phenomenal through this process, have been an incredible testimony of what it is uh, to walk through difficulty and tragedy. But uh, I think all of us should be praying uh, for them today, and then I uh, want to tell you that so that you can be praying for them tomorrow uh, as well. So why don't you join me as we uh, go before uh, our God and ask him uh, to move and work in these things. Lord Jesus, we come before you right now. Uh, God, we, um, God, honestly, I, I think of some of these things. I think of brothers and sisters who are literally laying down their lives right now for the gospel. Uh, I think of Lynn and just the the year of incredible difficulty and hardship. And, and um, God, I'm not so proud as to say that I don't get it. I see some of the good that comes out of it, but there's a part of me, I just, I, get, I don't get it. I, I struggle with that. And yet in the midst of these things where we can come before you, God, we can be honest about these things. We can be honest about not getting it, honest about not understanding it. And yet appeal to the fact that you are a good and just and righteous and um, compassionate and caring God. And we don't necessarily have to get the whole of it. We just have to get who you are and trust in that. And so I pray just for those specific things. God, I, I pray for Lynn tomorrow. I pray that as he goes in for the surgery, that your hand would be upon him, that it would be upon Denise and the rest of their family, that you would give them great comfort and peace. I thank you for the unity that they have around this decision and just uh, so, so yielded to what you have for them. Uh, God, we pray for the doctors that you would be with them as they perform this surgery, that you would have your hand upon them, that there would be no infection, that Lynn would come out of this um, better, that he would just come out of this better. And it sounds almost insane to say that when we think about removing part of a limb and yet... We're praying to you, God. We're praying to the God of the universe who can do all things. And so it's not crazy. It's not insane. It's not out of the question. 
God, as I think of our fellow brothers and sisters in Iraq, I think of the church there, I think of just the intense cost that they're paying right now, uh, huddled, sheltered, thirsty, hungry, uh, unknowing whether or not they're going to see the sun rise again. God, I pray for our brothers and sisters that you would give them resolve. God, I pray that you would give them perseverance. I pray that you would bind them together. God, I pray for resolution and peace. I pray for the overthrow of this evil and wicked and corrupt regime. And that, God, that righteousness would rule and reign in that land. God, I pray the gospel, that the very birthplace of humanity, that the gospel would penetrate that land. And that revival, that revival would flow from that place. Lord Jesus, please, would you do that? Would you watch over your saints there? And God, for us now, I pray that as we open up your word, as we look at true riches, what it is to find true riches, I pray that you would come and speak to us, that your spirit would guide us, that you would direct us, that you would lead us, that Whatever it is that you would call us to, that we would have the courage to embrace that. Lord Jesus, be with us now, we pray. We pray. It's not in your name that we pray, Lord. Amen. All right, Matthew 6. Matthew six nineteen, uh, Just six verses that we're going to look at here this morning. Title of the message is Finding True Riches. And pretty much anywhere in the world, at pretty much any point in time in human history, uh, there is no shortage of legends and myths and stories and tales of some form of lost or buried or hidden treasure. In fact, right, you don't have to look very far, even in New Mexico, so much of our history as a state uh, is defined by a number of those Uh, 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 expeditions and and journeys and quests to find lost and hidden treasures. And whether it's looking for the get-rich-quick thing, whether it's the allure of riches and that they would seemingly, and I use that word seemingly because we know that they don't really do this, end all of our ills or troubles, or maybe it's the draw to some kind of power or freedom or fame, People have been chasing riches for centuries. In fact, I would suggest to you that from the very beginning of human history, the people have been chasing and pursuing and racing after riches and all that would come from them. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in Jesus' day that that was no different and that Jesus himself chose to engage this very issue. And so six verses, just six verses that we're going to read here this morning, starting in verse 19. Let's just all uh, get our eyes on a copy of God's word and see what Jesus himself has to say. Here's what he says, starting in verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, okay, get this, loved ones, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
And Jesus gives us this illustration in verse 22 and 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, I want to underline this, uh, you cannot serve God and money. Uh, Mike, I thought that um, it was inappropriate or wrong or socially unacceptable to talk about money. Isn't that like a social taboo? It is. And I don't really care, all right? Because I'm not talking about money. Jesus is talking about money. And if it's good enough for Jesus to talk about, it's certainly good enough for us uh, to talk about here this morning. Uh, finding true riches, three things specifically that uh, we see here in the text. But before we begin to walk through this, let me just preface it with what we've seen at every stage of the Sermon on the Mount so far. This is about a heart issue, loved ones. This is about a heart issue. Jesus wants to get at your heart, get at my heart, get at our heart regarding money, finances, wealth, possessions, things of that nature. And, and like everything else that we've seen, it's not about just the conduct. He wants to address and speak to our hearts on this matter. I'm getting right at it. And so notice three things, three things with that understanding of it's not just simply do this or don't do this with your money. Here's the first thing. We'll spend the bulk of our time in verses 19 through 21. Finding true riches, it starts with this, an eternal investment. You want to find true riches? You want to get after true riches? You've got to have an eternal investment. Look at what Jesus says. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. An eternal investment Often, oftentimes we come at this passage or other passages of money and, and we, come with it, we, we come to it with, with some kind of preconceived notion. Oftentimes what we do, whether consciously or subconsciously, we assign value, a righteousness value with wealth and possessions and finances. We, we, we tend to, to gravitate towards either um, if you're righteous, then you're going to be rich, or if you're righteous, you're going to be poor. And of course, there's all kinds of distortions that come out of this. If you move towards the righteous, rich distortion, you have the prosperity gospel, and that uh, if Jesus loves you and you love him, then you're going to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. He's going to give you everything that you want. And I would just ask you, I have that play out for the apostles, right? I didn't see any of them profiting at great lengths. In fact, none of them ever tapped into their retirement because they were dead long before it ever happened because it cost them their life. Okay, so that th there's a problem with that. Okay, and then on the other side, we have this, uh, th th this righteous poor poverty theology that good Christians have no money, they have no possessions, they have no wealth. It's this almost this asceticism that that. that, that all things are bad. Materialism is bad. Uh, possessions are bad. We should get rid of all of them. Okay, well, see, the scriptures don't really teach us that. Can we not all agree that Job was incredibly wealthy? 
I mean, that's what the, the scriptures tell us. Job was really wealthy. Abraham was really wealthy. David was really wealthy. Solomon uh, is unarguably the wealthiest person that's ever lived. Okay, well, that, 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 that's great and all. It's all Old Testament, right? I love that. That's all Old Testament as if that's somehow less a part of God's word. Okay, that's lame. Quit saying that. It's equally part of God's word. But just in case you want um, a, a little more proof, remember a number of weeks ago, 1 Timothy 6, talking about money, ironically enough, uh, then as well. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, as for the rich in this present age. So see, there's an assumption, right? He's speaking to the church. There's an assumption that there's going to be wealthy people in the church. He doesn't say liquidated. He doesn't say impoverish yourself. He doesn't say get rid of it all. What he says is tell them not to be haughty or to look down on others. Saying, listen, don't, don't think that you're somehow better because God has given you more. And so, so, so this, this conception that we will come to passages like this where we tend to assign some kind of value to either the righteous rich or the righteous poor, they're distortions of the biblical truth. We see incredibly righteous people who have a lot. And we see very unrighteous people who have a lot. And then the same is true on the other side. We see righteous people who have very little and we see righteous, unrighteous people who have very little. Here's the point. Jesus' design is not to deprive us of our treasure. Listen very carefully. His design is not to deprive us of our treasure, but to direct us towards the true treasure. See, what he never says, what he never says is don't ever accumulate. The issue is not should we or should we not accumulate. The issue is where should we accumulate? Where should we store up riches? Where should we invest in? That is his whole thrust that he's getting at here. It's not that we should never accumulate it. The issue is are we going to invest it here on earth? Or am I going to look out to eternity and invest there? Now notice three things specifically about that as we get into verses 19 through 21. Notice first of all in verse 19, the futility of earthly investment. There's a futility to investing, to laying up treasures, to uh, investing ourselves in the things of earth. Look at what Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That phrase there literally says, don't treasure treasures. Specifically, don't treasure treasures on earth. Why? Well, because they're going to be destroyed. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. They're going to be destroyed or even worse, they're going to be taken. There's no lasting power to the items that Jesus gives us this side of eternity. Now, I found this to be kind of interesting. Two of the, the primary ways that wealth was measured in Jesus' day was through clothing and through grain. And so clothing, right, clothing was one of the ways where people would protect their wealth. In fact, they would sometimes even weave a valuable, uh, precious commodities into their clothing, weave a gold or things like that into the clothing. And so that was part of how they would protect their wealth. You couldn't trust a bank. Okay, so you had to have other ways of protecting your wealth. And some things never changed, right? Some, some you might say, all right. Um, but, but it was either through their clothing or through grain, Grain was another way that they uh, protected their wealth. And you go, wait, wait, he's talking about, I see the moth part, okay, the moth destroying clothes, but I don't really get how rust gets at grain. 
Well, the word rust literally means an eating, and it's actually tied to the destruction or the consumption of grain. Certainly in our day and age, we understand the concept of rust and what it does to items. And so at the very least, it's going to be destroyed, and maybe even worse, it's flat out going to be taken. Here today, gone tomorrow. In a moment, stripped away. How, 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 many people, how many people even in this room could tell stories of, I had it all, I had everything, and then this happened. I lost my job, the economy crashed, the fill-in-the-blank how fleeting it is. I actually had someone break into my car this week. Rifled through it. No, no, the joke's on them. There's nothing valuable in my car. (laughs) They literally took nothing out of it. I kind of like to laugh thinking about ha-ha sucker, right? But, But that was a stark reminder that anything could be taken at a moment's notice. I mean, the car itself could have been gone. That would have been a little bit painful. All right, anything in the car, there's no value of anything in there. But this futility of the earthly investments. Remember in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus tells us that parable of the rich young fool? Young guy, he's killing it, man. He just, he can't, so much so, he can't even contain all of his wealth. And so, of course, you're always in a problem when you're in a bad place when you start talking to yourself in the third person. So he starts talking to himself, self, what should I do? I'll tell self, here's what you should do. I'm going to build bigger barns. And this idea of I'm going to accumulate more and more and more. And then, of course, God shows up. Okay, this little nugget is free. Anytime God calls you fool, it's time to change course. All right? That's where he starts. Fool. This very night, your soul. This very night, your soul is demanded of you. And the things you've prepared, I love this. Whose will they be? Because they're not going to be yours. You're not going to be around to enjoy them. You're entering into eternity. These things aren't going with you, right? A lifetime of work, a lifetime of accumulation that literally evaporates in a few brief seconds. The futility of earthly investment. Do you know that the richest man that ever lived spoke to just how futile it is to invest here on earth? In fact, flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 real quick. I want you to see this. Just so you don't think I'm not making this up. All right, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, written by Solomon. If you want to know just how wealthy Solomon was, you can go read Ecclesiastes 2. Uh, but I want to look at Ecclesiastes 5. I want to start in verse 10. Here's what Solomon tells us regarding wealth and money. Keep in mind, no one, no one has experienced the wealth that this guy experienced. Here's what he says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. He's he's saying, listen, you're never going to have enough and you're never going to be satisfied. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes. He's like, listen, as you gain more and more, so you gain more and more people who are going to consume them, whether it be family, whether it be friends, whether it be taxes, whatever it is. 
He's like, all you get to do is see them. It's almost like a punishment. You get to watch someone else consume all of your goods. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer when he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Saying, listen, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. Verse 13, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. See, the more you have, the more it tends to have you. Verse 14, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. See, the more you have, the more you stand to lose. That's why we so often want to grip it so tightly. That's why I encouraged you last week, especially you young people, you develop the habit pattern of giving generously when you have little. Because as you gain more and more, it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily. In fact, it's quite difficult the more that you have. Because you stand to lose more. Verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came. And he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. You're going to take nothing with you. Fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have, whose will they be? I mean, how utterly futile is this? How utterly futile is our pursuit of worldly wealth? And yet, time and time again, generation after generation, person after person, we chase and chase and chase after these things. It's it's like we haven't learned our lesson. It's like we haven't taken a clue from all who've come before us. So here's five. Okay, here's five. We could probably do 50, but let's do five. Five ways that we store up treasures here on earth. Here's the first. We continue to see worldly goods as best. We're still convinced that possessions and material things and objects really are the secret to happiness. They really are what's going to satisfy us. They really are what's going to make us happy. And at what point in time are we finally going to wake up and go, you know what? It's not working. And how many people have millions or tens of millions and hundreds of millions and they're still miserable? Like, when are we going to clue into this? That it's not best. They're not the best. Secondly, because we've bought into this lie, we continue to grasp for more and more. Last week I talked about one of the Vanderbilts was asked, when do you know that you have enough? And he said, when I have a little bit more. See, because I think that it's best, because I think worldly possessions are best, I continue to chase, I continue to grasp for more and more and more. Let me ask you something, loved ones. Do you have a financial finish line? Do do, do you have a financial finish line, a point where you come to, where you go, you know what, at this point in time, I don't need any more. And so anything above and beyond this, I'm just going to invest right back into the kingdom. I'm not going to fall prey to this trap of of chasing and chasing and grasping and pursuing. But you know what? (laughs) At this point, when I cross through to the other side of that, I'm going to give it all away. And how few of us, how few of us have anything like that in mind. We continue to grasp for more and more. Thirdly, we fail to build giving into our regular spending. We don't make it a part of our regular expenditures. We don't make it a part of our budget. We have no margin. We create no margin. We have no ability to share. We have no ability to give. 
Now, here's what I think happens in the heart and mind of someone that, that we, we don't invest at all in being willing to share with others is every single penny that comes in is expended upon me. And what it begins to do is it fuels something in my mind that says, well, I'm spending all of it. I would need more in order to give. And right, you see how it just begins to perpetuate this cycle. And I got to have more and I got to have more. And because I'm never going to say, you know what, I'm going to stop right now and we're gonna, I'm going to back up on some things. And we're, we're going to make this a fixture of our expenditures and allow that to begin to uh, play out in our financial life. See, it's all about me, and so surely I need more. Because I fail to do this, here's the next one. And of course, as we move down this, it's just a downward spiral. I fail to be content with what God has given me. I'm not even content with what God has given me. Now think about that for a moment. I look around and I see all that God has entrusted to me. I see that all that God has given to me, but because I'm grasping and chasing and possessions are best and I want more and more and more, the first thing on my lips, the first thing out of my heart is not God, thank you, but God, I want more. Which is in essence to say, God, you have been insufficient in your provision for me. And in our extreme opulence as a society, uh, I, I think we've become so jaded to the reality and what the rest of the world's wealth truly looks like that we've lost all of our bearings. In fact, let me just try to illustrate this for a moment. $100,000, if you make $100,000 in a year, where do you think that places you in terms of the world's percentage of wealth? Come on, tell me. Where do you think that puts you? Top 10%, top 20%, top 5%. Tell me, what do you think? Top half of a percent, top 1%. Okay, you ready for this? $100,000 puts you in the top 10th of the top 1%. Some of you are like, what? Because, see, some of you live in that. Now, some of you are like, well, Mike, I, uh, that's like a pipe dream. I'll never see that kind of money. Okay, well, let me just, let, let's go to the bottom part of the top 1%. Okay, you ready for this? Gross income, 32500 U.S. dollars. $32,500 puts you in the top 1% of the world's wealth. $25,000 puts you in the top 2% of the world's wealth. I found it interesting that the poverty line in our country is just below $24,000, and yet the top 2% of the world's wealth is only $1,200 higher than that. Now, I, I understand, okay, I understand that cost of living has to be factored into this, but it's not that extreme, loved ones. It's not that outlandish. And so I don't think, okay, I don't think the question is, has God really been good to us? Has God really provided for us? I think the question is, in our heart of hearts, have we failed to be eternally grateful for all that God has given to us and entrusted to us? I mean, for, for how many of us, you start hearing some of those numbers and they're downright embarrassing. Just for grins and giggles, I looked at the median income in Rio Rancho. The median income in Rio Rancho is just over $60,000 a year which puts you in the top 
one-fourth of the top 1%. As a median income, we live in a community in the top quarter of the top 1%. And so often we want to look at the Joneses. Let's turn around and look at the rest of the world and quit complaining and start being thankful for all that God has given to us. So futile. So futile. Here's the final thing. we, We store up treasures on earth when they become our source of hope or trust or security. In a word, it's when we let possessions or wealth become an idol in our life. See, they become our security blanket. They become what we uh, fall back to. They become what we trust in. It becomes what's going to sustain me when things fall apart. It's futile. It's vain. It's pointless. And yet, what do we keep doing? We keep chasing, chasing, chasing. Now, this piece of metal... This used to be useful. It used to be. It used to have value. But Gary, tell me, what's happened to that? It's rusted out. Can you do a whole lot of anything with this? I mean, it looked good in the trash can, right? All right. Can you do anything else with this? See, that that piece of metal is a little bit better, isn't it? This piece of metal is rusted out. Has no value, does it? They don't. I'm sorry, brother. But as you look at this, as you look at this, this is what so many of us are chasing. This is what so many of us are after. Now, could you imagine? Could you imagine at the end of your life? And Jesus says, here you go, David. You're like, I, I, I don't really want that. That's what you've invested your life in. That's what you've chased after. That's all that remains. Wait, 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 wait. And then there's some other crowns. Aren't there some other things? Yeah, there's a couple of things. But see, for far too many of us, that's what we're after. I don't want that. You're free to throw that away, but I don't even want that. All right? You can keep that. You do what you want with that. The futility, all right? The futility of earthly investment. Notice this secondly, look at verse 20. Jesus is going to turn everything on its head. The fortune, okay, the fortune of eternal investment. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He's like, listen, you you can invest in the things of the world and it's going to be gone, poof, disappear, nothing left, or, or, or. What you can do is you can invest in the things of eternity. You, you can give your life to the things of Jesus and, and, and it's never going to be destroyed. It's never going to be distorted. It's never going to be taken from you. I mean, that's exactly what he says right here. See, the problem, the problem is for far too many of us, we go, but I, but I want the benefit right now. I want it right now. And I'm just curious, in the investing world, where else do you find a 100% return on investment immediately? I'm just curious. Anyone? Okay. Anyone ever had that five-second investment, 100% return? Anyone ever seen that? That'd be like the, the, the financial coup of the century, right? It doesn't happen. It, it, that doesn't happen anywhere else in our lives. And so why would we think that when it comes to eternal things, that it would be any different? 
right? The, the, the fortune of eternal investment, but having to see beyond what's right in front of us. Jim Elliott, a famous missionary who um, went down to South America and, and eventually gave up his life long before he saw the gospel go to the people that he went to, said this. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. Really a modification of what Jesus himself said in Mark 8 when he said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Right? An old, corrupted, rusted out piece of metal. You don't even want it, do you? You stuck it back under my chair. He doesn't even want it. <laughs> All right? Nothing, nothing, nothing that we possess is safe from destruction or thieves save that which is eternal. And, and when we begin to find treasure in heaven, we begin to see a wealth and possessions and things like that with an eternal perspective. First of all, we have to understand there's an implication. I'm going to forego, forego some things this side of eternity. I'm going to give some things up. I'm going to walk away from some things. But when that happens, right, when the heart is right, that's where generosity begins to flow. That's where it begins to pour out of us. Again, this isn't some poverty theology. Jesus isn't trying to strip us of all of our treasure. He's trying to direct us. Jesus is saying, I I don't want you to invest your life in this garbage. I want you to have something substantial and meaningful and lasting. On the other side of this, when the heart is right, generosity flows. Remember back in Nehemiah, first beginning of the year, we went through Nehemiah. And the people were so convicted, so challenged. They began to give. They began to divest themselves. You remember, remember back in Exodus when, when, when Moses was telling the people to begin to give? This is, the, I think, the only time in all of human history, right, where, where they told the people to stop giving because they gave so generously. I mean, could you, could you imagine if I stood up here on a Sunday? Hey, listen, um, we love you all, but I'm going to need you all to stop giving or redirect your giving because we can't handle all that's come in. For the record, I would love to make that announcement. All right, I'm not holding my breath, but you never know. We can be the first. Gives us something to shoot for. All right. Uh, David, First Chronicles 29. Uh, before the people, he says, who then will offer uh, willingly, who consecrating himself today to the Lord, and then I love what it says next. It says, then the leaders made their free will offerings. And over the next number of verses, it talks about the different people who freely gave in that regard. See, the fortune, the fortune of eternal investment, the response, the response to stuff, the response to things, the response to money, the response to possession, the response to materialism, is not, is not, is not poverty. It's generosity. That's the response to materialism. That's the response to all the the opulence of our day and age. It's that we would be generous. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us. Look at verse 21. Uh, I don't really know what to tell you outside of, I just called this the treasure principle. He says this, for where your treasure is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Did you catch what he said? Did you catch what he's getting at? He, he, he's not saying, hey, um, your heart will tell you where your treasure is. He's like, no, no, no. Where you're invested, where you're invested, 
that will become the thing that you treasure. And we talk, we talk an awful lot around here about behavior modification and heart transformation. And we talk about your behavior is never truly going to be modified until your heart is changed. There's only, there's only one direction. You don't change the behavior and then all of a sudden your heart's like, hey, that's a good idea. No, the, the heart has to be changed. You have to get a, the root. The same is true here. If you don't treasure the things of God, if you don't treasure eternity, if you don't invest in the kingdom, your heart's not going there. Your heart's going to where you're invested. That's where, the, I mean, that's what Jesus says. I mean, like, how clear is that? And so in the same way that a sunflower would follow the sun, our heart will follow our treasures. It's not a one-time decision, but a continual choosing to do so. What do you treasure today? Right now, right here, this moment, what is it that you treasure? What is it that grips your heart? What is it that you love? What is it that consumes you? God help us, right? God help us that we would resolve today that I will not allow my possessions to have me. I won't be gripped by my stuff. I won't be held by my wealth. But I will hold my wealth in a manner that is consistent with biblical principles, understanding that it could disappear in a moment. And you know what? That's okay because it was never mine to begin with. It's always, always, always been God's. I've solely been a steward and a manager of it and holding it loosely. And maybe for some of us where we need to resolve today to to choose afresh that I am not going to allow my possessions to have me. Uh, There's a story, there's a story that um, uh, goes along with the Crusaders. You guys remember the Crusaders? Not exactly a a hallmark in Christian history, okay? Uh, But there's a story that goes along with them that when they would be baptized, that many of them would hold out uh, their hand, sometimes even with their sword in their hand, And the idea was that they would be consecrated, that they would be dedicated, committed to Jesus. Except that by holding out my hand, that I still uh, maintain control over that part of my body. And so the rest of me could be consecrated, but I could go out and slay another and it would be totally fine. Now, most of us, most of us, that's not our issue is holding the sword out. But see, for some of us, maybe for far too many of us, it's not the sword, it's our wallet. I'm going to hold this out. God, I'm consecrated to you. I'm committed to you. You've got all of me. Except I'm autonomous in this one area of my life. It can't be so. It can't be so. See, I, I, I would suggest to you That more than anything, how we view possessions, how we view wealth, is one of the clearest indicators of how we view Jesus and how we view the gospel. And so just ask yourself right now, is there anything in my life, is there anything in my life that I would be unwilling to give up? If so, what is it? And why does it have you? What thing in your life, what futile treasure are you being gripped by? 
G. Campbell Morgan says this. He says, you're to remember with the passion burning within you that you are not the child of today. You are not of the earth. You are more than dust. You are the child of tomorrow. You are of the eternities. You are the offspring of deity. The measurement of your lives cannot be circumscribed by the point where blue sky kisses green earth. All the fact of your life cannot be encompassed in one small sphere upon which you live. You belong to the infinite. Now listen very, very carefully to what he says next. If you make your fortune on earth, if you, David, if you, Alan, if you, Dennis, if you, Tara, if you make your fortune on earth, and of course you go ahead and put your name in the blank there, poor, sorry, silly soul, you have made a fortune and stored it in a place where you cannot hold it. Make your fortune. Right? Accumulate your riches, not here, but there. Make your fortune, but store it where it will greet you in the dawning of a new morning. An eternal investment. It's where true riches are found. Here's the second thing. Second thing. Look at verse 22 and 23. Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body, right? He now gives us this example. The eye is the lamp of, a, of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Second of all, when talking about finding true riches, there has to be a singular focus. A singular focus. The idea that the the eye is the window into the heart. So I just wrote two things down here. Two things. Notice this first of all. uh, Verse 22, light and healthy. Light and healthy, that when light shines through, we're healthy. That the light penetrating into our hearts and minds, that there's, there's health that, that, that comes from that. There's health that's found there. The Greek word uh, for, uh, for healthy there is haplous. It literally, uh, it means clear and single. If you've got a King James version, the, the words there, they talk about single-minded devotion. But it carries with it this connotation of being Generous. And so the single-minded devotion, the, 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 the being sold out to the kingdom, is that I see all of the kingdom uh, through the lens of generosity, and that my wealth and my possessions and the things that Jesus has entrusted to me are seen through that grid and through that lens. The vision is clear, there's health, there's purpose, there's intentionality with all that I have. Light and healthy. Then notice this, verse 23, a singular focus. Jesus gives us the positive provision in verse 22. We see the negative in verse 23 where it's dark and constrained. It's dark and constrained. He says, uh, but if your eye is bad, that word bad there, evil, uh, carries the connotation of being stingy or being uh, jealous. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And what Jesus is really saying is, listen, if your heart is focused, if your heart is fixated on physical things, material things, um, worldly possessions, it's going to cloud your vision. It's going to cloud your judgment. It's going to cloud how you see and view the kingdom. And so as we consider these two items, light and healthy, dark and constrained, and begin to contrast these two things, Right, where it begins to speak volumes of where our heart's really at. It speaks volumes of where our heart's at. Again, not some poverty theology, not Jesus stripping you 
of your treasures, but forcing us to really wrestle with where it's directed and where we're invested. And when I consider my wealth, when I consider my possessions, when I consider my money, do I see them as a tool? Do I see them as an asset? Do I see them as something to leverage for the kingdom? Or is it where I find my hope and my joy and my source of satisfaction and comfort? Are they an idol in my life? Finding true riches where there's a singular focus on Jesus. Then finally this, look at verse 24. Verse 24, Jesus says this. He says, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. I mean, like, how, how, how clear is that? Give me two, I need two people real quick. Two people, just any two, come up. There's one, there's two, thank you. Okay, Alan, you're over there. Um, Joe, I need you, or, yeah, right over here. Okay, um, first person here who wants to be God. <laughs> okay, you're going to be money, all right? You're money, which in the cultural context could sometimes be good, but in this case, it's bad. Uh, you, good luck. Um, accurately portraying God, but we'll let you run with it, okay? No one can serve two masters. Here's what you've got to understand. The term master uh, literally means Lord. It's a reference to, uh, really in that day, slave owner. And so it's one thing to have a boss that controls you from eight to five. It's another thing to have the entirety of who you are being controlled by someone. Now, now how is it that I could possibly be fully devoted to both of you, like, uh, if, if, if I'm going to be devoted to you, I'm going to follow you. So I'm, I'm going to go wherever you go, man. Where, where are you going? Okay, I'm, I'm going to go where you're going, okay? And then, um, no, I'm not, I'm not devoted to you anymore. I'm going to go wherever you're going. Where are you going, God? Where, I'm, I'm going to follow you. Okay, now stop for a second. See, we try to toe the line on this. And we foolishly think that we can kind of go back and forth. And here's how most of us, right? Okay, I'm going to follow you. No, nope, no. Nope. Okay, I'm going to come over. And I'm kind of torn back and forth. And you look like a fool is what you look like running around. Now, see, what, what happens is, um, why don't you guys come back here for a moment. And, and there's times where two masters will walk closely with each other. And at least from an appearance standpoint, I could follow both of you. But now go ahead and start walking away. There's a division that takes place and a choice has to be made. Okay, you guys are amazing. I don't know. I don't know if you fully rightly portrayed God. I don't know if I can say that or not. (laughs) But but do do you see the point? Do do, do you see what he's saying? You can't serve two masters. You can't follow two masters. He he goes on, he says, for you either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, you can't claim Jesus as Lord if anyone or anything has the allegiance of your heart. That object, that person, that thing would be what you would call Lord, not Jesus. You can't follow, you can't serve, you can't be a part of two masters. John Calvin says, this. He says, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. Where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. John MacArthur, in um, following up on Calvin's quote, says this. He says, our treasure is either on earth or heaven. Our spiritual life is either full of light or of darkness. And our master is either God or money. What master are you serving? 
What master are you serving? Who has gripped your heart? Who, who, who dictates and determines the course of your life? Who is it that your allegiance is to? See, that's what we all got to wrestle with here. And we live in a, in a flush, opulent society where this is such a very real temptation for so many of us. But what master, what master am I serving? When they may, is there a course that needs to be corrected? Is there something that I need to hold more loosely? Is there something that needs to be repented of? Is there something that I need to be more thankful and grateful to God for? Am I chasing more and more and more of this? Or we would just wrestle with that. And we're going we're to come to the communion table. And I think very fittingly, as we consider who's got our heart, who we're gripped by, who we're following, who we're yielded and surrendered to, And so as we come to the communion table, let me just let the words of the Apostle Paul uh, speak into us here. Uh, Jesus says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as we come to the communion table, would we come with our hearts and minds fixed on the work of Jesus fixed on the work of Jesus in that it confronts our shortcomings, our sinfulness, our failures in those areas, but also fixed on the finished work of Jesus in that we don't work harder, try harder, do more to earn His favor, but that it's already been done, that it's already been accomplished, that He's already given that to us, And so as we come to the communion table, uh, let's just take these next few moments to to pause, to reflect, and to consider, and to be sure that there's nothing between us and God, that, that there's not some other master that we're serving, that there's not something else that has gripped our hearts, but that Jesus Christ and Him alone is who holds the complete and total devotion and allegiance of our hearts and in our lives. Here at Faith Church, we practice what we call open communion. And so all that we ask of you is that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you can look to a point in time in your life where you've turned from sin, you've embraced Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. If that's true of you, then you're free to participate with us. We have three tables up front. We have two in the back. I know we've got a little bit different seating arrangements, so let's do this. In the very center aisle and the outside aisles will come forward. Uh, The two uh, in between aisles will head backwards. We'll do the one-way traffic thing as best as we can. Uh, We would invite you now uh, to come. Uh, Come to uh, the communion table to grab the elements and then hold them and we'll partake together here uh, in just a moment. But why don't you come to the table?